Today on the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast. This is a reset button, right? For for many, you can look at you can unpeel that in so many different layers. For reset button for humanity, for you know progress and you know society and living and things we have taken for granted. But fundamentally, it's a reset that is happening, a rewiring that's happening. And the most authentic and impactful thing you can do, at a minimum, is to recognize that, accept it. And then sit down with your stakeholders, you know, whoever it is, family, you know, uh, employees, investors and stuff to redefine what success really meant for that relationship. Here is Michael Hainsworth. Ganesh Padmanaban is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He's helped enterprises execute the promise of AI at Molecula, advised the Forbes Technology Council, and as the VP and head of growth at Cognitive Scale, helped drive success in the US, UK and Asia Pacific for companies as varied as Procter & Gamble to Dell. But he's never had to deal with a global pandemic. If his advice is to renegotiate the definition of success, I began by asking him what past success he's leaning on for that advice today. It's a great question. I grew up in India, southern India especially, um, you know, by the coast. So. That had an impact on my demeanor because it's very relaxed beach lifestyle and stuff like that too. I'm an engineer by education. I did engineering, uh, mechanical engineering in undergrad, but very quickly during college, I realized that I, you know, I was into programming, so I started writing code that helped helped quite a bit. Uh, you know, paying through, making some money during college, if you will. In 2016, uh, saw the great opportunity with in the market where. The amount of data being generated was crossing the human threshold to analyze and make decisions with it. And we knew that this was the time when Watson was coming of age at IBM, and I could see the market where you know, AI or artificial intelligence was going to have a huge impact on how humans and businesses are going to make decisions. So my original first company was the notion of if every decision was going to be made by, uh, by machines or algorithms, then humans then somebody has to explain it. Because it's one thing to look at a picture and say it's a cat or a dog or a muffin. Totally different scenario to an AI predicting and uh, rejecting a medical claim, the patient passes away and you're looking at a multi-million dollar lawsuit, right? So it's a whole different ball game. And so the algorithmic explainability, understanding how algorithms make decisions was gonna be a huge foray. So my first you know, company at that time in 2016 was hey, if every decision was going to be made, uh, made by algorithms and most decisions in businesses, somebody has to explain it. So here's explainability as a service, which was a offering for AI systems to really understand what's behind the model that's making decisions. Well, it so happened that the first VC I sat down with was the first general manager for IBM Watson, and brilliant guy, and he happened to be the executive chairman of uh, Cognitive Scale, where I spent it was another startup, uh, a later state startup, Series B funded startup at that time. And he convinced me that this idea is, while great, is actually at least you know five to 10 years away because most organizations are still figuring out what is AI. Um, and so I ended up you know, joining them to lead most of the commercial functions like business development and marketing and ended up spending the next two and a half years uh, you know, just working with large organizations and while shaping the product that is needed to go help organizations build and you know, build scalably AI systems to make decisions, to help. And we called it augmented intelligence because we fundamentally believed that it was about, you know, uh, augmenting the human in the loop to make better decisions with data, right? 
And then fast forward that, you know, uh, I left uh, Cognitive Scale last year after a couple of years of really good growth and great thing. And I started seeing another trend in the market um, where most organizations were getting started on the AI journey, but it was really hard to scale that journey. And there were multiple problems with actually scaling that. But one of the big fundamental things was data. It was data sitting in multiple systems, multiple locations, format systems, and it was hard for organizations to pull it all together. It took too long, cost too much, and you know, at the end of the day, the AI systems, AI projects suffered because they couldn't get the data in order. So we, I helped co-found a company called Molecula last year to go uh, attack that problem of how do I unlock access to data across the organizations for an enterprise. And so that's been my journey. And then, you know, uh, in the process, uh, I'd done multiple things around, like I was an EAR, an entrepreneur in residence at Capital Factory, which is an early stage accelerator here. Got experience working with a lot of startups, a lot of, lot of lot startups and a lot of entrepreneurs uh, to, to really test out their initial ideas and then take it to market as initial offering. Uh, in, a, in a weird sort of way, a full circle, one of the co companies I'm on the board of advisors for today, it's called Credo.ai, was uh, co-founded out of the AI fund by Andrew Ning, the, the big name in AI. And uh, Navrina Singh, that's the founder, she's a friend of mine. And what they're doing is actually bring in the whole auditability service for AI systems, which is where I originally started my AI journey as well. So many different hats, mostly in product sales, go to market and being around and being with and started multiple startups in this whole process too. You point out that there are three key themes that are top of mind for businesses today as they address COVID-19. So businesses today have uh, are contending from my experience right now on three key themes with COVID-19 and the current ongoing pandemic. Number one is business continuity. Number two is remote workforce. And number three is how do you really reimagine or design for the next normal? With business continuity, we're dealing with the issues of disruption, but also an acceleration of a digital transformation. Absolutely. So the business continuity, it, 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 that term itself, is, it's, very, uh, it, it's very fully loaded, right? So there's multiple aspects of that term as well. If you're an organization that is doing business already with customers and your customers are interacting with you on, let's say, non-digital models or even digital models and frameworks and stuff, how do you continue that relationship with the customer? That's one part you got to think about, right? If you're in tech, like your point on, you know, if you're already on a digital journey, if you're like Amazon, for example, right? And, you know, how do you, how do you scale and accelerate? Because this is an opportunity of a lifetime to really accelerate your, your competitive advantage through technology if that's how it actually originated, right? Amazon just hired 175,000 people since March, if you're in a mid-market, small cap, or an early stage, early stage company, the question is, business continuity is very different. How do you build resilience? How do you conserve cash? How do you prioritize your, your survival and to come out really strong on the other side, right? Uh, but, you know, the, the general idea is customer and human behavior has fundamentally changed, right? Face-to-face -face meetings for sales, for sales has nosedived. People are mostly multitasking because you're in front of a screen all the time. How does your business change to adapt to all of that, right? Uh, one, of, one of my startups, a medical devices company, I'll give you an example. It changed the way they, in, they interact with surgeons to actually do, uh, uh, you know, to help them do surgery better. And a lot of elective procedures during this time has gone down. And these surgeons are now in front of their customers and the computers, in, in fact, uh, instead of spending time in hospitals and systems in front of a patient, which opened up a 
fundamentally different channel, an open line of communications for them to have direct conversation with. You know, earlier they had to go through the hospital enterprise, the systems, the, the teams before they even get in front of the surgeon, right? Uh, this opened up a channel for them to interact with them and how they're focused on gathering more feedback and refining their products. So being flexible is extremely critical in prioritizing this whole notion of business continuity. So business continuity means many different things for many people, many different organizations. But generally, it's about like, you know, everything, you know, life around you, life around your company is changing. Interactions are changing. How do you keep up with it? My background around enterprise systems and data centers and stuff, a lot of our old customers who used to have data centers because they didn't want to move to the cloud and they want to actually host their data on-prem, they can't have anybody go into a data center or they have to plan the shift around it. So there's business continuity for them. Maybe how do I keep my apps up and running? There's so many different things that are causing this. You mentioned conserving cash. Uh, how do you know when it's time to open the wallet and when it's time to keep it closed shut? Because we always know the maxim, it takes money to make money. Yeah. Uh, shouldn't we be throwing money at the COVID-19 problem to ensure that business continuity? Well, it depends on you know who you are and like what your cash balance looks like, right? So if you're a big tech, if you're a large established company with loads of cash, this is the opportunity of a lifetime where you get a preview of how the world is going to evolve and change. But most of us in the startup community aren't in that world. We're not there, right? So in the startup community, it's the other way around, right? There's If you have line of sight, if you are in the side of the business that really gets accelerated, that the, what you produce becomes more valuable in this particular environment, then absolutely, this is the time to go double down, right? I mean, uh, you can think of if you're in e-commerce, if you're actually you know in collaboration, if you're in... Uh, you know, uh, uh, communication environment, if you're even in data and analytics, which becomes important, uh, and if you're building products that improve business continuity for organizations, I mean, this is the time to double down on. And the, the, the notion of uh, cash conservation comes from the fact that most startups, you know, most startups are not an overnight success. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So one of the fundamental things where your entire fabric of the society is being rewritten at this time it's important to actually remember for the long term, how do we actually conserve and be resilient for the long term? And that was my you know, that my comment around conserving cash. So keeping that in mind, but, you know, yeah, if you're actually, this is a time for you to accelerate your business, don't lose the opportunity because it's, you know, we'll get used to actually working in this new normal, then it won't be an emergency anymore. <laughs> so is it the new normal? Has customer behavior really changed fundamentally forever? Great question. I would say, is it a new normal? Well, what we see today, is this it? I don't know. I don't think so. I think this is definitely a preview of what is to come. Everybody's made careers about predicting how this world is going to be. Preparation is the other side, which you actually, how do you prepare for a world that actually comes in and changes them, as we know it, right? So to your question on has this fundamentally changed itself? Absolutely. I mean, what, what COVID-19 um, or this whole last six months almost has really taught us is a few things. I mean, on a personal basis, I, I look at it this way. Human evolutionary dominance has its costs. We have taken life for, uh, on Earth for granted. So that it is leading a whole slew of things and viruses and uh, paying attention to pandemics. And second, we don't know how to deal with the pandemic. You know, there are so many lessons as civilians, you know, we're taking our liberty for granted, all that kind of stuff. It also exposed the fragility in the human society, the racial unrest, the, uh, the mistaking mass mandate for challenge to liberty, socioeconomic divides, and all those kind of things. 
all this really shapes at the end of the day, the way it changes the way we live our life today, right? Uh, I have two young kids and six and two, and they were here like five seconds ago, just before the call started. And I said, daddy has to get on this call and have this conversation. But before that, I was trying to actually, you know, I was thinking through certain topics and writing you know, a couple of emails and follow-ups. It was life interrupted. I mean, it was ex exactly when you humans, uh, you know, I can multitask, but most humans cannot. You just slice your brains to actually do multiple things. But imagine the cons consumer, on the other hand, what does it do to attention span on an already lack of attention span, you know, uh, environment with everything digital and the explosion of data and stuff like that, right? So it changes the way, you know, humans interact. It changes the way, you know, COVID taught us to put life or family back in the center of society. So how important is work? How important is your, you know, what is work-life balance in this new realm, right? All of this have downstream impact on how, or upstream impact on how consumers behave. You know, how much time you spend researching a particular product? Do you trust the news or you don't? Do you actually, you know, walk out and talk to multiple friends to talk about certain things? How do you actually, you know, work in that environment and so forth? There's so many different things that are, that are coming here that has changed fundamentally. Which brings us to that evolution of the remote workforce. How do we as a, as a startup entrepreneur ensure that we have a, a readiness within our operations to ensure that we can capture this new way of interacting, not just with our clients, but with each other? Great question. I think it's a hot topic. Everybody's talking about it. And there's a lot of data out there. And I'm a huge believer of first principles in a lot of these things, right? So fundamentally, if you're a startup and you're building out your operational infrastructure to build and scale, it's a no-brainer. Don't try to look for resilient cloud-based systems to actually base all your frameworks on, which most startups are already doing, so you don't have to do it. But I did once in a while meet a startup who's trying to stand their own environment to, to host the machine learning model and do deep training under their desk with heavy servers and infrastructure and so forth. So. Um, just operationally make sure that you're you're embracing the cloud-based computing environment to go put your systems, make it resilient. Things that you don't have to worry about for maintenance and the continuity, you know, outsource it. Do do that, right? From a interaction perspective, one of the biggest problems I'm hearing, and it's happening everywhere, is burnouts. So how do you in the long? So this is the the importance of long-term perspective in this regard is very important. How do you make sure that you're uh, really building and motivating the team for the long term, right? Uh, scaling, and that includes scaling back expectations with investors, with employees and stuff to actually start reframing the problem in the current pandemic. If you started off this year that I'm going to you know, grow the business 3x last year because that's my plan to get there. Well, honestly, you've got to really sit back and understand how, it, uh, how it's going to play out for this year and for the shock waves out of the system to come out for the next year and the year after. So what does that mean in recalibrating, renegotiating success with your investors, your employees, your partners, your vendors, and the whole nine yards? So those are some fundamentals. Then you take on the customer operation side of things. To my point on remote working, customers don't have the time that they used to have. They won't sit through a presentation for an hour hoping that they'll get the answer out of it. So how do you actually interact with them in that digital first, digitally native model your communication needs to be more crisper. You know, you, if you have a 45 minute meeting, the first 10 minutes was pleasantries. Now it's like, you know, two minutes. And so how do you really adapt your way you communicate? And, uh, and, and you ought to be really empathetic to what they're going through, their families, their situation and stuff like that. Uh, teams, uh, you know, um, team members, uh, 
working in Asia where they live in like one bedroom, two bedroom apartments and they have two kids and, you know, both the spouses are working and it's a very different environment. What you used to get, take for granted in the way you actually used to have these long calls and conversations with them is now have to be compressed to a very effective, efficient mode of communication to go make something happen. So, um, you know, the, the whole notion of remote workforce as leaders, you got to think about how do you really understand the stress that the employees are going through? Um, how do you interact with customers on the other hand? And, you know, an example that I have is we were working with a large pharma. We signed a deal in the middle of, uh, in the thick of things in late March. Uh, and, uh, there was one part of the process where they required vet signatures and one of our team members didn't have a printer at home. And, you know, it was just a scramble and it was like two days to the end of quarter and they were trying to get this thing done. And so these are simple things, but you really imagine how, that'll play out in a, in a contextual environment like this, right? So um, yeah, remote workforce, remote environments, remote working is gonna be here forever and it's gonna change and evolve in a lot of different ways. Being prepared for it is important. You brought up an interesting phrase that I think sort of encapsulates everything associated with rewiring our brains under COVID-19. We have to renegotiate the definition of success. It's critical, right? I mean, you, you could describe it like from a financial landscape. It's a black swan event, right? Or you could call it a gray rhino, which is basically it happened because you saw some, you know, breadcrumbs and you never really paid attention to it. And then boom, voila, next thing it's the, it was the elephant in the room. Uh, so, but fundamentally what it did was really change the fabric of the society and fabric, it, it changes everything around us. And the most authentic thing, thing to do here is to actually a realize the impact of this particular thing to you as a person, to people around you, to your stakeholders around this thing. So I approach life in this way, you know, personally from this fact that this is a this is a reset button, right? For for many, you can look at you can unpeel that in so many different layers for reset button for humanity, for you know progress and you know society and living and things we have taken for granted. But fundamentally, it's a reset that is happening, a rewiring that's happening, and the most authentic and impactful thing you can do at a minimum is to recognize that, accept it, and then sit down with your stakeholders, you know, whoever it is, family, you know, uh, employees, investors and stuff to redefine what success really meant for that relationship and what do you need to do? Because, and it's not so much about being conservative and, you know, trying to, there's, there's, it's, it's not so much about being risk averse and entrepreneurship is by definition risky and, well, we live in a world where walking maskless to a supermarket is risky, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a fundamentally different world than we started the year with. And it's a time to actually, and there's everybody, and I'm sure I am, and I'm sure you are, everybody's going through moments of reflection, moments of, you know, reconnection, if you will, with many different facets of life. And this becomes a very important and right thing to do to actually sit down and renegotiate the definition of success. So then how do we design for the next normal? Is it simply a function of throwing more digital <laughs> at our lives? Well, no, I mean, uh, definitely not. This is a, this, that's a great question. And you, you, this is a broad question, to be honest, right? There are so many different ways you can, you, you have to look at this, right? If you're a business, one thing this has taught us is no business is hundred percent resilient, but those that are technologically more fortified, if you will, are faring much better than the ones that are not. So what does that mean? That is actually a signal to say technology and digital is important to invest in and the right places and the right, you know, the right ways of things, right? 
One is just investing in technology-led innovation, accelerating the digital journeys that you're already on, you know, things like data and AI, multi-device collaborations, because now you're looking at, you start a, you know, watching a movie, you continue that in the particular thing. Now it's more than that. You start you know, uh, a, a, your school on an iPad, and then you're, you know, uh, you got to go do something in another device and so forth. Can you imagine there was actually a time in, cor in the corporate world where you were told which device you were only allowed to use? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, bring your own device was the, 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 the special thing for organizations that are not doing that. And yeah, no, it's just like, it, and, and there's, believe me, there are still organizations that require that. You have to actually use the device that they actually sent you. But, you know, and, and those ones, you know, if you're not really fortified with the other elements of this, it's going to really suffer in this whole thing. So it's not throwing more digital, but investing in technology-led innovation is going to be definitely, definitely, definitely important here. The second thing is you really have to think about, the, you know, I look at this whole environment as in three phases, right, where you responded initially, and that response included, hey, everybody work from home, make sure that, you know, you told your IT teams to make sure you put all your systems that will scale with wherever the employees are, which devices they use, and so forth. Those are just responses. Now you've got to recover back from where you started, right? And then you have to reimagine this business. But, you know, it's more than just technology. This whole process is more than just technology. It's organizations. How, does the, how do you structure organizations, you know? Uh, business models, workflows, and how do you, you know, if you had a, a paper-based process for employee onboarding, how do you reimagine that? You kind of have to start thinking about this as how, what is the new emergent operating system for the business, right? Um, and then lastly, when you reimagine it, that's when you actually start looking at it. I mean, the, there is opportunity all around us. Look at the silver lining in this, right? You know, your remote working infrastructure just, you know, stood up. We, we went through about uh, a couple of years of digital transformation in a matter of in a few months, right? Cloud became an equalizer, uh, being you know able to uh, uh, use an existing infrastructure like cloud infrastructure to stand up different applications and have it up and running. And things that people have been putting off have just been accelerated, right? The new working models, the new social models, the new meaning for global scale, everything has fundamentally changed it. And, you know, from a data and AI perspective, I think about it this way, because we're in front of a computer, we are actually doing a lot of these things digitally now, a lot of digital channels, you're generating a lot of data, which becomes the fuel for defining your future interaction models and so forth, right? Uh, so, and then, you know, my point is like, they, there is technology is an element, but then beyond technology, you've got to start thinking about business model, interaction models, and start looking at how do you reimagine the environment, the ecosystem for the next normal, which, I mean, it's not 100% defined, we're not there yet, but we have a pretty good glimpse of what's to come. Startups, I can imagine, would be far more nimble than a more established, larger organization for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which is they don't have the silos that you often have with large organizations. Mm -hmm. The structure can be so much more simpler to get decisions made more quickly. I can't imagine those startups ought to be too cocky about that because the big boys, they're the ones with the big bucks to catch up. No, it's, it's, a, it's so true, you know, and I've, I've, been, I've been talking to a lot of prior colleagues and friends and advisors and, you know, uh, executives in these big companies. And in a weird sort of way, startups always had the big advantage over the last, you know, I don't know, a couple of decades, if you will, of being extremely nimble. They, they were the only ones who had the digitally native infrastructure who could start from scratch. They didn't have to worry about, they didn't have any of the baggage, if you will, right? 
But what we did, and you know, smaller teams, less of process to drive innovation, and all those things happening. So on one hand, what's happening is uh, there is, and we didn't talk about capital at all, but you know, early stage, really early stage capital is dried up, but then folks who have enough capital at startups are getting more fuel because people still want to put money somewhere. Um, but on the one hand, startups who had the advantage didn't really have the capital to actually go execute and make it happen. And they were kind of freely available over the last decade or so. So they did well. On the larger side, you know, because of all the politics and the, this is the way things are done, the natural innovation, you know, the uh, innovator's dilemma, things haven't changed for a while. Well, all the large organizations who are in that mode and who already had the beginning of it, they understood it, they were at least 12 months into a digital transformation journey, they just used this opportunity to just accelerate. And they could because they had the capital and they had put in some base infrastructure in place. Now, there's a lot of folks who won't come out of it, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of folks who didn't really think that they just thought this whole digital fad will go away. It never did, and it's not going to go away. So for them, it's a different story. But those big, start, big organizations who are well-established, have funded, who realize the value of digital transformation, this is an opportunity for equaling this whole thing because all the things that made startups really nimble and being able to deliver quicker are now available, like it or not, for these larger organizations. A digitally native application landscape, uh, a, a remote first workforce, the ability to actually hire you know, talent. If you think about it, like six months ago, I was talking to a large industrial company just a few weeks ago, and they were telling me that they were hiring about you know, 20, 30 data scientists in different pockets in Asia. And I'm like, well, you guys are based in Atlanta, you're a huge company, what are you doing? I mean, you never actually, he's like, yeah, we never have hired a single data scientist outside of our offices in the last, until about six months ago. And now you're saying, look, that's where the talent is, I'm gonna go there because this has become, it's it, the, the cloud and the, the whole remote working environment has become an equalizer. So the big advantage the big companies have against the startups right now is they can now afford to and hire these talent anywhere in the globe. That makes a product development life cycle that much more important for a, a startup. How do you accelerate and main, or at the very least, maintain a schedule? Or do we have to go back to the concept of renegotiating the definition of success? How do you keep your team on track? No, that's a good question, right? There's two parts of the question. One is product development itself, right? How is this fundamentally change the way you look at product development. What are the areas? How do you actually really think about developing products in this next normal, the new normal? That's one aspect. The second aspect is, uh, you know, how do you actually motivate and manage a team in this remote, you know, everyone everywhere and this whole entire remote environment? You know, we talked about customer modes of operation changing, right? So one of the first things you could do is build out a very agile infrastructure on how do you do product development? Right. How do you, you know, innovation cycles and product development were defined in weeks, months and years in the past. Now you have to start thinking about in a matter of weeks, the world changed. Right. I mean, in, if you look at everything that happened, how do you create a hyper agile approach to development? Right. And there's a lot of learnings that really successful startups that have done. Right. Or even digitally native businesses like Netflix, for example, launches you know, tens of thousands of changes or product releases every week, right? I mean, just like different little things. And it's, it's, a, it's a very different model of working. It's not the traditional waterfall versus agile, but really thinking about how do you create a hyper agile environment where you create the small pods to go, you know, 
iterate very quickly, look at the data and make pivots and changes as they actually go through. Right? That's one aspect of it, right? Um, the second you know, aspect of this whole product development is the human experience we kind of touched upon briefly in terms of like, you know, uh, how life has changed for individuals, life has changed for customers. How do you really redefine the human experience in this new thing where it's digital first, so rethinking user experience beyond just UI? You know, how do you build a product that you know, traditionally gets introduced and sold by a human being in physical location, for example, in retail, to actually be available in a digitally native environment but through the, you know, go through parts of the experience they would otherwise go through, right? And we, we've solved these in pockets, but, you know, trying to get that whole thing done. So that's one aspect of it, right? In terms of product development, how do you really think about, you know, customers and, you know, geographies and everything? In this, the, the tougher question, as you asked, is the thinking about how do you really operate this environment in a really globally extreme thing? And I don't think, and I haven't, I haven't figured it out, honestly, uh, but it's going to be an evolution and process. Part of that is going to be the negotiating success. Part of that is going to be about understanding the limitations of working in this particular thing and say what you can actually output versus not. Part of that is actually, I mean, I, I like to think of it like I'm, I'm an athletic background. I've done you know, sports and in, in any kind of sports, it's not just about picking place and executing to it. It's about understanding the strengths of the organization that you have, the teams that you have, the players, how they all you know play with each other. And the defining and designing or adapting plays that works best to go, you know, far and faster. Uh, and the same approach needs to come into business in terms of saying you have a team that's in there. And part of that is like etiquettes and things like that about like you want to make sure that you're respectful of people's time. So how do you be flexible in that working model? But also this whole notion of how do you really reimagine product development cycles in this particular thing, right? Is it do you, you know, break your product framework or what are you trying to achieve into multiple parts to give autonomous projects or slices for different individuals in different zones? Do you create these virtual parts to actually go focus on certain sets of that that are geographically more particular things? Because there's a lot of traditional mindset around saying they used to, they always say, don't hire, you know, more than two time zones away, right? And that was a classic thing that everybody used to say, because it's hard to actually coordinate. I mean, I think those are being rewired and rewritten. That's, you know, you're going to probably lose out the biggest opportunity of a lifetime to get a really globally diverse and, you know, really talented, globally talented uh, workforce uh, that you didn't have before. If innovation has accelerated and we've compressed, as you say, you know, in some cases, months or years down to weeks or months, what does that mean long term for the company? Good question. So I, I teach um, product strategy and product management at the UT, uh, University of Texas in Austin. Uh, and in my background in products as well, I've spent a lot of time thinking through and, and talking to a lot of experts on is this notion of how do you how do you sustain innovation over a long term, right? And it, it, the one thing that has really come to the forefront in, in this way, like, you know, change is not new. Change has always happened in the markets and stuff forever. It's the only constant. It's the only constant. What's different now though, is you had a lot of time for a change to get established, set in place, get used to people before you give them another paradigm shift or a change in this thing. That time frames have come down, right? I, I, you know, the classic examples of the, 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 the telephone took about, um, you know, 30, 25, 30 years to get to 50 million households. Angry Birds did that in two days. Right. So it's it, it just it's it, the change is constant. Right. I mean, as you said, but the rate of change is completely accelerated. And 
most forward-thinking organizations have already kind of figured out a way that works best for them to adapt their product development processes to be ready for to encounter the change and make pivots and changes and stuff like that. So on the long term, and this is, you know, mostly a hypothesis and, you know, that's we're going to all play it out in the world. When change is happening at such a hot, fast rate, the only way you can actually sustain and be on top if you're an organization is to innovate across multiple vectors or multiple dim- uh, dimensions, right? There's all those schools of thought around diffusive innovation and how do you actually you know, kind of like create a free market for ideas where you're actually running a multiple ideas at the same time with minimal investments, a lot of upside. And then you start looking for signals that will actually bubble up a few real strong ones that you can just double down and invest for the longer term, right? How do you create those kind of environments to create, uh, to, to accelerate innovation at the rate of change or something close to the rate of change that is happening? I don't know if anybody said this, but this whole idea of like, specialization versus being a generalist, right? What is going to really determine the success for organizations in the long term by when all these things are happening right now is being having this hyper agile approach to be have a generalist capability across multiple domains, multidisciplinary domains to look for that areas that they can go specialize on and then double click and go build on the long term. So short answer for that is, it's going to be around how do you really look at multimodal, multidisciplinary ways to actually innovate across multiple fronts at the same time for you to be really successful. And 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 there is no one answer. And you know, I'm sure there'll be five companies that'll be started today that's going to prove me wrong on that particular one. There'll be you know ten that is actually already on a path in this way, and they're going to prove that this is the right way to do it. In this environment, an environment that will be with us for some time, how do you validate? your expectations of a market? How do you confirm what you've learned about it? How do you ensure that you're getting the appropriate data coming in that tells you you're headed in the right direction? Million dollar question, I guess. You know, as I said, like one hand, you have the ability, there's a lot more digital exhaust, as I call it, of interactions that you have with customers, with users of your products and so forth. So there's always, I mean, if you know the right questions to ask, you know, really spend the time on understanding and figuring out what are the questions to ask and how do you instrument those questions into your product to get the exhaust out of the usage so you can actually learn from it. So that's one way. And and the question is, uh, how do you validate and how do you make sure those are learnings and the right thing? There is no, I wouldn't say there's a right an- right or wrong answer in learning, right? I mean, it's a, it's fundamental to how you think about it. You start with the hypothesis, there's a scientific thinking, you know, you go play out this particular play, you instrument it to ask the right questions, you get the answers. Sometimes the answers are not the question, not off the questions you wanted to ask, right? So being flexible, again, my hyper agile mindset that I was talking about is beyond just product development cycles. It's about how do you instrument your, your, your organization to go listen on things that you're not even asking a question about, and then applying that to your next iteration. So the, the, For the last, I would say, five to six years that, you know, uh, I've also personally learned, I come from, you know, running two to three year, I was at Intel for a long time ago, where a product development cycle was as much much as like, you know, 18 months, right? So 18 months to three years, because 18 months, the, the chip fabrication technology advances, and then, you know, productization takes longer and stuff like that. To now, the only constant way to actually make sure that you're learning and iterating faster is to build this approach of rapid iteration and learning from the exhaustive things. 
and there's no right or wrong things to learn. You know, it's, 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 it's sometimes you're going to ask the wrong questions and you're going to get the answer that you don't want to hear. And that might give you an insight to actually look at something else to do in the product to learn more in that direction. Before I let you go, would you launch a startup in this environment? There's no perfect time to start a startup. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of case studies for starting companies during uh, an economic crisis or a pandemic, and there's enough that it's not during a crisis. There's no perfect one answer. But here's, here's the way I would think about it, right? If your goal was to do a startup, right, there are, there are three main, I would say, ideas that you have to, um, um, you have to think through, and it'll be hard to repeat until another pandemic or another black swan or gray rhino event happens, right? Number one is you now are in a, in a preview mode of what's going to come in terms of rewriting the fabric of society, uh, rewriting how people live and work, how the business operations have to happen, remote working, childcare, schooling and education, retail, how people buy and interact. You can start to see some early trend lines right now and, and, and the world is going to be different than what it was before. We don't really know how, but it, these are good trend lines to go, you know, learn from to go design. Number two, capital is still very cheap. The relaxed monetary policy in place, the, you know, we see early stage funding has dried up a little bit, but alternative capital is available. People need to put their money somewhere. You know, it also, on the other hand, will give you an opportunity to build a company with operational disciplines of understanding what, how do you build with all the constraints around it? How do you, you know, build for resiliency? And it's not just about, I have an idea and let me find someone to build a check, right? It'll lend itself to building a business with the operational discipline needed, needed in the long term from the ground up. And then three, I would say people are in front of their screens more than ever. No travel, no time wasted, no, no long in-person meetings. People are actually now more accessible forever. Customers, partners, investors, it's a great time to connect with thinkers, investors, customers, and I'm spending a lot of time doing that myself. So with all that said, would I do a startup at this time? I think, you know, if, 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 if your goal was to do a startup, absolutely. You know, you, you get an opportunity to be a part of fundamental shift that is happening. If that's your goal, which is to, I want to do a startup, this is, there's no better time than this to go do it. Now, if you want to really do a startup, it's with all the different baggages that come with actually doing a startup. But it's a great time to do it. It's a great time to end startups and entrepreneurs are nothing but problem solvers. And we have, we just figured out in the last six months, there is more than just a virus. There's a lot more fundamental problems to be solved for humanity and for the society. I'm excited about it. Subscribe today to the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast with Michael Hainsworth in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or in your favorite podcast app.